when you surround yourself with people who are much smarter than you are, you have, you're going to take it up the nose, buddy, because you're going to be the stupidest guy on the floor. That's what happens. Welcome to episode number 48 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with interesting people who tell their stories and the life lessons they've learned along the way in order to inspire you to live a life of meaning and purpose. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver, and I'm so glad you've stopped by to listen to today's podcast. How are movies made? When you watch the closing credits on any movie, there are hundreds of people, sometimes even thousands, who have contributed their skills to that particular story. But there's one talent that often gets overlooked. Many movie directors hire an artist to help them visualize the script. This artist is known as the storyboard artist. Today, my guest is J. Todd Anderson. He's worked on many movies you've likely seen. He's been the storyboard artist for nearly all of the Coen Brothers movies, films like No Country for Old Men, Fargo, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Raising Arizona, The Big Lebowski, and more recently, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Today's show is a little bit longer. J. Todd has a lot to talk about in his long history of working in Hollywood. So if you like movies and you want to hear some behind-the-scenes stories, stay tuned. Hey, if you enjoy the My Story podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And please share this episode with a friend who's perhaps a friend who's into the movies. And now here's my interview with J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd Anderson, welcome to the My Story Podcast. Thanks for uh, being willing to hop on the camera today and, and being on the show. Thank you, Conrad, for having me. That's awfully nice of you. You are in Dayton, Ohio right now? Is that Right now, yeah. Yep. I'm, um, this is during COVID. I've already had it. Um, I went from like three projects, two pretty good-sized movies, to nothing in one day after COVID. Wow. And all of them told me, we'll give it two weeks and that was back in March, you know? So mm. I've only done one relatively big project since then, but I started doing commercials for a fellow here in town. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the big project was a storyboard project, but you know, occasionally they let me direct. So I'm doing those commercials and that helps out a lot um, mm-hmm. money wise. Um, so I'm just kind of, here I am which is yeah. something I'm hardly ever in Dayton during the winter, you know, um, sure. uh, because of all the problems and, um, you know, I'm beginning right. to wonder if my in- industry is even going to survive. In this whole- yeah, that is a question and we can get into that in a little bit, but I want to kind of back up and, uh, you know, talk about, you know, how did you get to where you are today? You know, I wish I could give you that in a short answer, but it's almost impossible. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're a storyboard artist. You've worked in the movie business for you know most of your career, if not all of your career. What got you started in that? When I was in college, I went to Wright State University, and I was a communications major. That's what I was. And I was the only one in my family, extended family, that ever went to college at that point. My mom was the youngest of like seven kids, and all my cousins, none of them went to college. And um, uh, I could see that that I should do something out of high school instead of just getting a job like everybody else did. 
because I can draw. I've been drawing since I was a small child, and uh, my mom kind of schooled me on drawing in my early years, and um, that was kind of what fell out of my hand was drawing. And um, I learned from various sources besides my mother, um, like the Browns, Cleveland Browns. I used yeah. to watch them with my dad every Sunday, and I would draw them. And that's how I learned how to draw action figures was hmm. by watching football, and I would – the Browns, especially, you know, because that was a team. And um, they're in the playoffs this year. It's about time, 20 <laughs> years. And I got to tell you, you know, I have a real skewed opinion about people that make so much money and, and, uh, you know, buying stuff. You know, just the whole NFL thing is just, I just mm-hmm. don't like it. I don't like the commissioner. I don't like the way they exploit people. But I am in, in the business of exploiting people because I'm in the movie business. But I got to mm-hmm. tell you, because of my father, uh, I am a Browns fan, and one of the reasons that I'm so ardently pulling for them is because I learned how to draw by watching mm. Cleveland Browns. You know, um, that's where Do you I still got. have some of those sketches. Oh, I'm sure somewhere. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, but um, you know, I studied. You know, football has a lot of a lot of stop and go action, and um, you know, and it came in really handy on a movie I did called Leatherheads, which is footballs in the 20s and you know i almost thought i don't know how anybody would do this if they didn't know how to draw football players because there's a lot of drawing in that movie you know football players running Mm -hmm. there's like seven on each side or something like that i don't know nine people on each side and that's another thing about movies is i learn how to only what i need to know and then the rest i don't care about anymore (laughs) (laughs) you know like i did a roller derby movie a while back with drew Barrymore and uh I couldn't tell you how they score that stuff to this day. And I drew the whole thing, man. <laughs> and so you have, so you were in college, you were in a, I mean, what was your major? You said it was art. Communications. Communications, I'm, right. Yeah. I already knew how to draw. Sure. I didn't know. I didn't say I knew how to draw well. Okay. <laughs> I knew how to draw. And um, I just wanted to get a liberal arts education, but what happened is a sequence is a, a sequence of events happened when I was, you know, in my college years, 20, 1920. Um, what it was is I, I took a class. I started at a community college and um, I took a class, American culture and film. And we watched all these movies from the fifties, you know, um, and how they changed the side of invasion of the body snatchers. And we watched all these mo- movies and discussed them. And because I was, when I grew up, we only had three channels. Uh, they would play movies all night long. And that's how I got to watch a movies because in the summertime, I never really went to bed until about eight o'clock in the morning because I watched movies all night. And that's what they used to do. And that's how all these movies that were really famous and popular got in front of people um, because they had sold them to television. So I kind of knew about all these movies. I didn't know what I thought. Oh yeah, I've seen that movie. And that was always my advantage in college that I'd seen a lot of movies as a kid because that's all I did was watch them um, when they were on all night long. You know, I had a, a good general knowledge of cinema and, and I didn't even know it. When I got to college, I started taking film, you know, after mm-hmm. community college, I moved up to the university and I started taking um, a film classes you know mm-hmm. they were just you know to fill out my schedule i wasn't a film major mm-hmm. and i started taking a production course and um 
and I, I kind of got into that pretty heavy, you know, I started messing around, but it was a little too late to declare a major. So I just kept taking those classes and making movies and competing with everybody at school. We, there was like five of us and we we're very competitive, very, very, very competitive. And uh, there's one guy in there was really good. His name is Jim Van Bever. And he was making movies when he was a kid, making those crazy movies of, with uh, Mel Gibson's and stuff and, and James Bond. And here he was an eight-year-old kid, you know, in a suit. And, but he made them on eight millimeters. Wow. So he was recreating these movies? Yeah. And he was the guy that all of a sudden I had somebody to shoot off of the fence, you know, mm. the bottle to shoot off the fence. And so I had, when I was in community college, I started reading a lot of books about cinema. And most of them were the heads of all the, all the companies like Zanuck, all these people that ran studios, you know, I read their biographies and I read Frank Capra is the name of the title which really iced it right there, you know, because that was the book that sent me into making movies. Um, I was so inspired by that book. But I'd also read about Jack Warner, and I read Daryl F. Zanuck, and uh, um, the guy that started Universal. I read their biographies. I don't know why I did it, but, uh, and then when I got to university, I started making these little movies on um, Super 8, you know? Um, and my friend, again, Sequence Events, he loaned me a really good Super 8 camera that you could do back lines, and it was such a strong lens. It was a Nikon. So when I came in and started exhibiting my movies, you know, in class, you know, because we were all do one time we had to make a movie every week without sound now, without sound, okay? And that was a big deal. My camera was, was so good. When you start touching Super 8, it messes it all up. But then my friend, George Willeman, who's at the Library of Congress, gave me a really good guillotine cutter where you could cut that film and tape it and it wouldn't come apart while you're running it through the projector. That was the biggest problem is they would come apart on you. So this guy would make these movies and everybody would, and we got very competitive. It was almost fist fight competitive, honestly. And then we'd help each other making these movies. And um, um, my movies, I decided because I had read about storyboarding about Hitchcock, that I would storyboard these movies and voila, all of a sudden, my movies look better than everybody else's. Just by, you had you were able to plan the scene, plan the shot, and well, I was able to visualize as an artist, and then sure. that was very important. And um, because I could visualize and draw the little storyboard, you know, I, I had experimented non-storyboard storyboard, but the storyboarded movies had more glue to them, and they were easier to watch. And I was make, getting results, you know, and I was a couple of years older than most of those guys. I was like 23, but I'll tell you what, man, those, those days that we would exhibit our movies, they were strong. And one guy, I remember he ran his car into the river wanting it to sink. He thought it was going to be a junk car, but it didn't sink. And that was a problem. He got arrested. That's how competitive we were. <laughs> He was willing to go to jail for his movie. Huh? Oh, another guy threw a, <laughs> threw a dummy off a parking garage and he got, a, we didn't do movies about our mothers or, oh, why are we so conflicted today? We didn't do any of that stuff. We did stuff that had action and villains and we had knives, guns, all that stuff. Now people, you know, they really want to make an impression about how docile they are and how much they're concerned. And um, we were none of that. Um, we were after like an old Warner movie. That's what we were after. Um, you know, we wanted 
And that was when Spielberg and all those boys were hitting their mid stride, you know, with mm -hmm. uh, Raiders and stuff like that. And so um, those were some interesting days. And then I made this one movie that just did it. I won just about every film festival I was in with this movie. And it was because I planned it out. And it was kind of like when I was, you know, growing up with art teachers, I was better than they were, you know, because I was an artist. And a lot of art teachers would say, I can't really teach him. He's better than I am. I'm not bragging about it. I'm just saying that's the way it was. And I didn't really have – my art teacher I had as a senior just died, and he was the guy who kind of understood my, you know, my ability to draw. And so there was a pretty good professor there at Wright State. His name was Chuck Derry, and he's still around, Professor Charles Derry. And um, he was the guy that saw when I was planning this stuff, because he was a big Hitchcock fan, that it was going somewhere. And, um, and it did. It did. Because I had storyboarded this little movie out, it just took no prisoners at, at film um, festivals. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could guarantee myself that I could get, I could send it out in a little can, Super 8 can, me about six weeks, and it could win, and I'd get about 350 bucks back for it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And um, when I saw that movie perform in front of an audience and I saw how it stimulated people, there's a guy at rolls, you know, his, uh, he's running and he's running and he sees what's in front of him. And this big shadow comes out uh, and he instantly stops. Well, every time I saw that work in front of an audience, I heard them react mm -hmm. and um, I was sold. I mm -hmm. thought this is a good way to make a living because I, I paid for, I put myself through college. I had no help. And part of that paid for my college. <laughs> it actually got compensated for books and stuff like that. Do you have that. some of those movies now? Do you have them? Do you still I have still got them. I got to get them. There's a PPS in Cincinnati wants to get them digitized and everything. And I just, you know, I haven't had the energy to go down there because of COVID and everything. But I'll, I'll get them redone. That one little movie just made so much, did so much progress for me in my career. It was so effective. I, I just knew that was a way to make money, you know, because this is a business. And I don't think a lot of kids understand it might not look like a business, but you've got to make money at this. And, you know, my whole house you see behind me is from the motion picture business. It's from movies, you know. And when I met Joel and Ethan Cohen for the first time, I went, I found them. I told them that I wanted to be their storyboard artist. And I was very, very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time because they were ready to hire another storyboard artist after their first movie, Blood Simple, which I had seen three times. Hmm. And I was so overwhelmed by that movie and their methodical, you know, approach and how they technically mitered every shot. And then I read up on them and sure enough, they had storyboarded it. And so uh, after I got out of college, I worked on some really evil made for TV movies. They have such a huge script and they only get like two thirds of it done. Um, and that's how they do it. And it's back then in those days we had movie of the weeks, you know, that's what we had. And, you know, what they would do is they find an old star, like Robert Mitchum was the guy that I met and, um, and Wilford Brimley was the other guy and they find some young ingenue like Catherine York, where is she now? I don't know. And she was young and skinny and beautiful and Robert Mitchum pointed out to me that he was old, but he still got the girl, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he was a really nice guy. And that was just the worst experience I had in my life, except for Robert Mitchum and the producer named Jim Begg, who was a really nice guy. 
everybody else was just, oh, it was just horrible. It was like, you know, it was just one of the worst experiences in my life. We shot it in like two or three weeks. It's 20 day schedules are really fast. And I was so disgusted, you know, with the movie business. I, I just didn't know what to do. And um, I got on another movie in the week, which was Dallas the Earliers. And uh, I was painting cowboy boots, you know, as an artist. I, had, I was a set dresser on the first one. And I also drew furniture, you know, and that's what okay. people got me on. And um, one of my friends convinced me when he found out I was hot for this girl and she was going to Phoenix to work for the Cohen boys. And, um, and I said, I mentioned to my friend, Roger Belk that, you know, there's the boys, the Cohen boys are down there. And, um, and that was in passing cause I was hot for this girl. And, um, and I was going to take her out, you know, and she said, oh, I'd go out with you except I'm going to Phoenix, you know, and that's when we packed up our bags and we went to Phoenix. And, um, and that's where I met the Cohen brothers. They were doing Raising Arizona. And um, I showed him, they interviewed me, you know, and um, um, after a while I got the job. That's a lot longer story than that. Um, but I can tell you when I did start working with them, they saw my movie and that probably helped solidify it that I had the job. But I knew that they were going to be the next great filmmakers. I knew this. Mm -hmm. In my heart of hearts, I knew this. Mm -hmm. And um, they weren't too much older than me, but they are. They're older than me. And I was able to get that job. And um, when I read that script, I just couldn't believe it. It was just right down my alley. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very fortunate because I knew every time I came out of those sessions that this was going to be a really great and wonderful movie. What was that first process, that first time you were you know, drawing for them? What was that like? It was fantastic. It was just marvelous. One of the greatest experiences of my life. You know, I have several greatest experiences of my life. And um, that was one of them, you know, one of them that I can remember. I knew when I walked into that session that this, this was too good to be true, you know. And we started going through the script. And I had some experience because I had done some college work storyboarding. But... There were several things that I took away from that first session, like Joel was kind of inferring that we were going to pick up where Hitchcock left off, you know, and then the way he did it. And we we're going to make our system of um, drawing like Hitchcock, you know, and that's exactly what they did. When they, a little bit different from Hitchcock, they draw every shot in the movie, you know. So everything that you see on screen was pre-planned and yes. drawn on a piece of paper. That's right. That is correct. Um, and then we, as the years went by, we, we systemized our, our deal. And, um, there's not a lot of difference in the way it's done. I mean, Joe and Ethan are kind of broke up right now, but, um, there's not on Ballad and Buster Scruggs. There wasn't a lot of difference, huge amount of difference in the way we did that than raising Arizona. Um, mm -hmm. cause we were able to get into a really good groove together and, uh, mm -hmm. I was able I'd say to probably working with them over the years, you kind of began to understand right. what they wanted, right? I tried, made the effort. Mm -hmm. It wasn't hard. What was that initially like when in the early years? What was that? Was it, did you ever have times when it just wasn't working and you had to go back to, you know, page one? There was, I can't remember it. <laughs> you know, it was always my challenge to get what they wanted on paper, mm -hmm. which was in their brain, you know, because Ethan could draw pretty good he just you know he just did his own kind of drawings and they were really good i used to 
kind of use them as um as a way to get more information but joel would, he would actually take my hand and try to draw you know hmm. um, which i thought was always funny um but my asset was is that i could see into their brain and draw it it was completely intellectual material on paper but i made it existential mm-hmm. and i was always the first guy to see the movie always mm-hmm. i've seen uh, some some videos recently on youtube and other places where they're talking about the style that the cohen brothers had of you know especially when it comes to dialogue scenes there's no over the shoulder shots there's you know the camera's kind of in between the characters you get a clean single is that the cohen brothers or is that a j todd anderson thing no i just interpret it i say you mean like this and they would say no you mean like this yeah yeah you mean like this yeah that's it you know but that's very quick and loose sketches you know they're almost you can't read them only those guys you know and um, then i take them back and shape them up for everybody else you know a couple Mm -hmm. steps so, so on a feature film, how long, what, what, I mean, how long is that process, and where in the process does that, does this take? Do you? Are well, you, you gotta remember, my world is the Cohen brothers and everybody else. Right. Um, I always tell people there's only two kinds of people: artists and the other kind. You know, <laughs> um, but my world was the Cohen brother movies and other directors that would hire me. Mm-hmm. And nobody would ever, they want to get the Cohen way of doing it, but it was almost impossible because when those two guys were together and then when they, you know, brought me into the session, it was just a different environment. If it wasn't for the Cohen brothers, I would not be in movies because I would not be able to handle the way people do movies. I, I just, I'm not fond of a lot of the processes in Hollywood and, um, but I got to make a living. And so I'm a good employee and I do my best to give them what they want, but there's no way on the earth that you can get what Joel and Ethan got. It's Mm -hmm. just no way. You know, they say when people imitate you, that's the sincerest form of flattery. Well, hardly anybody can imitate those guys. Mm. (laughs) Why is that? What, what is about their style that is? I think it's just because, you know, what is that? some of the parts kind of philosophy, you know, where, you know, the sum of the parts is, has greater value, you know? Right, right. When we were all three together, I really felt like that first image got a tremendous boost. I was able to kind of really understand those guys, and I enjoyed every minute of it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Those sessions were so much fun. But I never had that kind of thrill with anybody else, ever. Mm-hmm. Because you've worked with other people as well. You've worked with some other big Oh, God, a lot of directors, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can tell you right now is when, you know, my handbook on working with directors and stuff, you know, but it's all different. Mm -hmm. And it it took me a while to understand that nobody else is going to do it like Joel and Ethan. And so I became a little bit more open to adopting, adapting, you know, to situations Mm -hmm. as I matured in the movie business. And um, it's just... You know, there's nothing like those guys. They, people can try and try and try all they want, but it's the sum of the parts, man. It really is. And I realized when I worked on other movies that I didn't enjoy it as much as I worked with those guys. I'm sure I bored people to death with, you know, how much I enjoy working with Joel and Ethan. What was one of, what was your favorite movie with them? And that's a couple different categories right there. Okay. My personal favorite 
is raising Arizona because it was my first experience mm. when I drew something and then all of a sudden we saw it on the screen mm-hmm. in the rude, rude, rude version that I drew it. And all of a sudden it was so refined when I saw it. That's mm-hmm. my personal favorite. That was mm-hmm. a big experience, you know, so. Sure. Seeing you were movie, how old at that time? You were in your early 20s? 25. 25, okay. Yeah, 25 or 26. Mm-hmm. And um, to come right out of film school, not film school because I was a communications guy. That's mm-hmm. still, they don't really like that. The fact that I was a communications guy at Wright State, not a film major. But to come right out of college, experience a couple black guys with uh, made for TV movies, and then find these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like two years later, that movie's projected on the screen mm-hmm. that I drew every shot. That was something else. There was sure. nothing. It's like, my first solo flight when I was learning how to be a pilot or graduating from college, which was unheard of in my family at the, mm-hmm. that time. Walking out of that thing was just, wow, you know? And then in, in true Cohen tradition, the movie picked up steam and it got legs. And um, they did an article on me in local paper here in Dayton and, um, all of a sudden, you know, I was a different person. <laughs> and I had just drawn that movie. That's all. Right. I wasn't like I made it. But people right. stopped me on the street and either and do two things. This was what they always did. Did you draw that movie? Yes, I did. Raising Arizona. They would say, I hate that movie. I just hate it. And they would stop me in restaurants because they put my picture in the paper. So I was identifiable. And they would come over to my table. I just hated that movie and then the other thing happened they would come over or they'd stop me or anybody and say i love that movie Hmm. it was so different so i had this incredible experience of comparison always in my shadow no matter where i went and it got bigger and bigger and bigger the movie did it grew and to this day people still contact me about it you know Hmm. not only was the experience great but afterwards, I got to tell you, when people come over there and give you so much passion in, in one encounter, you, uh, you think about that a lot. And mm-hmm. especially the people that hated the movie, you know, mm-hmm. I had never had anybody come over and, with such passion tell me they hated something, you know. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I got to tell you, it balances out. Other people loved it. There was no in between. And, and to this day, I'm always looking for that set of circumstances because that means you got something, right? right. Um, right. When you've got something that is, is, is no way they're having, they're struggling comparing it with something, then you got something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to do the rote scene, uh, then it's like Kenny Rogers said, you can go out and try to imitate everybody. You better try to live up to them. But it, if you want to do it yourself, get ready because it's not going to be exactly what you want to hear a lot of times. And, um, mm. but that was the very reason why I found those guys because I thought blood simple. I thought they were going to be the greatest filmmakers in the future. Mm. And I, I identified with everything they did. And I saw blood simple three times and you should be back when I was doing the made for TV movies, like a couple times I said, I was going to go out and try to work for those guys. And, a production manager said, those guys suck. You know, everybody hated them. <laughs> Was it just their style of working? I don't and, know, but yeah. people had so much critique, you know, because yeah. I all of a sudden I got in the business doing made for TV movies and all these people were 
had done a lot of movies, you know, mm -hmm. um, I didn't say they were good movies, but, and they, when they found out that I was trying to go out and get a job for the Coens, they just gave me huge critiques about how they hated them, didn't like them. And I just couldn't get over it. I thought something's going on here that these people have, they don't boo nobodies, man. Right, they just right. don't. <laughs> and I thought I'm kind of dying to meet these guys if I can do it, you know, if I can somehow figure out how to, how to tunnel in here, I'm going to meet mm -hmm. them, you know, and I did. And I was very yeah. fortunate, you know, yeah. to, to meet them. Yeah. What was, I know you, you appeared in some of the movies that, yeah. that you made. I mean, Fargo is one of them, right? That was my first acting job. It was your first acting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you are, I think you told me you were, you're on the cover. You're the guy laying in the snow. I'm the guy in the snow. <laughs> and you know, here's a little perspective for you. You know, I get shot, go down in the snow. I get a reasonably good close, close up out of that deal when I drive by in the car because they slowed it down one Christmas, you know, when they were showing it on some movie channel. And, I, you know, that was pretty cool. I got a snow globe out of the deal where I'm dead in the snow. Um, it was a great experience. Joel asked me to do it. But in the movie, you'll notice that right after I get killed, Fran enters the movie. Fran McDormand. And she steals the movie. So that just goes to show you, you know, you might think that, you're really gone places, but when you're face down in the snow on the poster <laughs> and the woman that comes after you gets an Academy Award, you are fodder for the volcano of fate. <laughs> you know, some people were meant to, you know, John the Baptist, all these people were meant to like, you know, you're good supporting actors and stuff. Well, I was, I was kind of put in one place face down in the snow. So Fran could go and just, just uh scorched earth everybody from that moment on <laughs> not that she doesn't deserve it but sometimes you get the mark on your forehead to do that stuff and you gotta do it you know um and i was always very proud of what i did there i could still do that take driving by in the car um and it was wonderful i all everybody when they knew you know, we played a joke and they, we put a little symbol on there. It looked like Prince's symbol and everybody thought Prince was in the movie. And um, it was a lot of fun. And the movie was great. Again, again, like a great movie. It had legs and it just, and he, Fran, even when they were cutting it, I was in New York and watching them cut it. I mean, even when Fran got put in a movie, everybody would start buzzing because hmm. it was instant magic when she hit the screen. Hmm. And um, she did everything but smash windows and, and, and steal everything. That's how good she was. And um, I was there. <laughs> you were just laying in the snow. <laughs> yeah, face down in the snow. That wasn't even me on the poster. That was dummy. And I'm sure he went to the same college as I did, you know? Um, but I got to tell you, she deserves every inch of it. She's so, such a wonderful person. She's such a great actor. Now, when you guys were shooting, when the Coen brothers were shooting, they didn't take a lot of takes, right? Well, those guys were indies, man. And they really put it on the screen and they planned everything. So they, they didn't really always do a lot of takes because everything was so planned. They solved all the problems that they could on paper. And that was kind of where I started in pre-production. And once they got all that in scale, then they started whittling it down to where, like, for instance, on Fargo, one of the biggest problems they had is it was a warm winter. 
and the snow was dissipating and just as fast as they could shoot it. And, um, and we ran right up to the Canadian border and Grand This was up in North Dakota? Yeah, Grand Forks. Mm -hmm. And for my scene, we had to keep moving um, a little bit north because the snow was um, just gone, you know? And the next day we go out there and the snow would be gone. They move up and, uh, you know, like where my scene, it's a lake. Mm -hmm. It's a frozen lake where, so they could get it, like Joel said, the moon, you know, he wanted it like the moon. And, um, and you notice my coat's in red, so it looks like a big blood stain, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, um, my scene, we could only get one take out of it before we'd have to move again and relight. Mm -hmm. And it was cold. You know, I, I think I messed it up three times, and then they tricked me, and uh, then I got a good take, um, which worked. And they, you see, they they piled a bunch of snow up on the car door, you know, and so I couldn't get out. Mm. And the car's upside down, and Joel's on the walkie-talkie. I can hear him getting upset, you know, because I've messed up so many takes, and I'm not a professional actor. And so I panicked and ran my shoulder into the door as hard as I could and got out and ran for my mark. And that whole panicky thing worked and they mm -hmm. took it, you know, mm -hmm. but I was scared because we were running out of coats because we had squibs back then. And, um, I thought I'm going to screw up here, man. It's like the shepherd's prayer, you know, Alan Shepherd's, they call it mm -hmm. the shepherd's prayer. Please mm -hmm. God, don't let me screw up, you know, but he, different kind yeah. of language. I was doing the shepherd's prayer in there, you know, <laughs> please God, don't let me. <laughs> it's a very funny story Alan Shepard on the top they could hear him in there praying please God don't let me up you know because <laughs> I always remembered that you know um, yeah. but anyway um, they got that take and I was good so why do some directors not use storyboards who knows I don't care about those guys they don't hire me you know <laughs> I'm, I could care less why they don't use storyboards. Just do you think their films look different? I do. Um, I think that storyboard means that you have to think through every shot and, and, and put a little bit more time. We didn't have a lot of money back then to do movies. So those guys put that money on the screen and that's how they did it. You know, you go through every storyboard, all of a sudden everybody kind of knows what's going on. They know what costumes are going on. They know what, um, what the effects are. And, um, um, you know, they used to just storyboard action scenes and stuff like that in animation, but um, there are a handful of guys that still get marvelous results by storyboarding. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time with guys that wanted to storyboard. It wasn't luck because I don't believe in any of that. I think, you know, you pursue what you want and you make your own luck. That's what you do. Hmm. And I, uh, I was very fortunate to know what I wanted at that time. And, and I actually pursued it and got it. And um, now we got a you know a bunch of movies that people still really enjoy watching. You know, mm -hmm. that's an the money's all gone for me. I don't get any residuals except for my acting stuff. But as an artist, now yeah, you work for hire. That's what it is. And um, was there ever a time when you were offered a job to work with a director that uh, you didn't do it because it compromised your belief or because it didn't fit with your style? Yeah, I did, and I was pretty cocky when I was young. And I remember they did Bill and Ted go, go to hell. And it was a good producer. He was really great. But I was, I don't know. I I think I could have handled it a little bit better. But I turned it down because I just didn't, I mean, I didn't think if you're going to do hell, man, that's some great material. And I just, I thought they were throwing away a really great, you know, hell's a, a really good thing to work with. But 
when you turn it into, you know, like a laughing comedy or I, I just, I just didn't see it, man. And meet Joe dirt. I turned that script down because I thought I didn't like it. I thought it was so stupid. That was back when I was really young and stupid, you know, now I'll take, you know, I'll figure out how to make the job. (laughs) (laughs) So have you been into the middle of a film and you're just like, Oh man, why did I do this? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 What was that? I said it was a life. It was a lifetime channels, lifetime movies. You know, you see them. Okay. Yeah. That that was, I did one of those. (laughs) Uh, You know, I was very fortunate. I didn't make a lot of money, but I was fortunate. I was good enough to select good scripts to mm-hmm. do. Uh, like mm-hmm. the first Men in Black script, man. I'd never read anything that good. Um, mm. It was so good. When I got off the airplane I, in Los Angeles, I thought, this is an amazing script. And mm-hmm. it still is when I watch that movie. It's like everything at the right place at the right time in that movie. I storyboarded quite a few good sequences in that movie, and I was very proud of them. You know, I'll give you a story because you'll never hear this story unless I tell you. Sure. You have to understand when you do this stuff, you are work for hire. You have to understand right. that. And you're not going to get credit a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And um, So your name's not in a lot of the credits at the end of the movies. No, no, I'm not talking about that. Okay, okay. I'm just you're saying just not, even though your name's right. in the credit, people aren't going to give you the credit right, gotcha. for coming up with a gag or the yeah. scene or anything like that. Because the and director you know, gets that credit, right? Oh, yeah. It's work for hire. That's what it is. And they can say, no, we're not going to mention you. Or they can just say, yeah, we had a really wonderful storyboard artist. It's their option. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that when you go into this stuff, that you can be on your most brilliant day on this earth and not get credit for it. Mm -hmm. And you have to suck that up, man. It's like I always say, I surround myself with people who are much smarter than I am. Always. That's been my ethos through the years. That and simple but elegant. You know, these are ethoses that I live by. But um, when you surround yourself with people who are much smarter than you are, you have, you're going to take it up the nose, buddy, because you're going to be the stupidest guy on the floor. That's what happens. And you have to understand that that's the only – exceeding your expectations is the only way you're going to be successful. And that's the way you do it is by surrounding yourself. You know, like I tell my girlfriend all the time, the minute I get smarter than you, you got to go. You know, you're out of here. <laughs> But so don't you dare <laughs> let me get smarter than you, you know, because you're finished. You're done, you know. But I'll tell you this story. On Men in Black, there's a scene where Walt and um, the two guys, the two stars, you know, are talking. And behind them is a car where a woman's having an alien baby, you know. Mm-hmm. And while they're talking, which is really funny dialogue because it was a really good script, in the background, unbeknownst to them is this woman's having this baby in it the car gets pounded and slammed around it's just the most brilliant comedy not because i helped them but those guys up front talking and then this going on in the background and barry sonnenfeld the director he was adamant about me drawing this scene really well because he was going to steven spielberg who was the boss he was the boss you know i was kind of scared because he was imploring me to do such a good job on this because you know when you meet with spielberg you know he's the king of hollywood and you know without him we're nothing and stuff like that Hmm. um so i must say that i was a little scared myself what i did is i turned in a flip book of the scene so you could see it going on in the background you watch that scene it's really a fabulous scene 
I made the flip book work just like the scene. And what they were after is they were trying to figure out, because this is the early days of digitization. It was very expensive. And they were going to digitize all this because, you know, Barry had made all these creatures um, and then he changed his mind and digitized them. And this is a while ago. And before digitizing, it took a lot, a lot to do that. And it wasn't just animation. It was digitized. And um, so there's a lot of money on the line in this movie. So anyway, I turned it in. And Barry comes back and he, he told me, he goes, Stephen really liked this. He thinks it's exciting. He was so, he was laughing so hard. And it was, this is very great, Jay Todd. This is wonderful. And then Stephen just couldn't, he couldn't contain himself. It was so funny. It was so funny. And I said, did you, uh, did you tell him I did that? He goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that was his way of saying, you're work for hire. Yeah. And I had yeah. a hard time with that mm. um, for years. And then I kind of got over it. And then they published a big article in some magazine that I get, you know, one of my trades. And he was explaining how they did that. And I was never mentioned. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That's got to be kind of like a poke in the ego, right? It's kind of. Well, that's what I'm saying. You get yeah. into this movie you get business and you got to understand when they don't give you credit. You can't take it personally. <laughs> but he you didn't even mention, all... he didn't even mention I created a flip book so that we could really, you know, drive right. this thing comedy wow. home, you know? And I was so excited when he was telling me and uh, that I was in front of Spielberg and made him laugh. And then when I asked him, did you mention that I did it? No. And I was, I remember walking to my car, you know, kind of like, why am I doing this? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you're insecure, which I am, you're going to take it pretty hard. And I did. I took it hard for years. And then this article came out again, no mention. So all I can do is tell people like you, Conrad, that I did mm. this. And, yeah. you know, like on Fargo, Peter Stamari was going around telling everybody that Prince was there. And he wasn't. It was, mm. that was the joke that Ethan and Joel did, you know. And I had to tell him, Peter, I'm not dead yet, man. You're supposed to do this stuff when somebody's dead. And that way, like, you know, all of a sudden McCartney wrote all those songs that, you know, Lennon wrote. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know how true that is. But mm. I'm just saying that when people are dead, they can't respond. They can't. Right. <laughs> and I had to tell Peter, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> okay. Wait till you get the raven out and pick up my eyeball before you start saying stuff. Like that, you know? So what, what's a movie? Peter's a really wonderful guy. I love him. He's a good guy. You know, Peter's what's a movie guy. that you're, and besides Raising Arizona, what's a movie that makes that, that you're most proud of? Oh, I think No Country for Old Men is mm. deadly brilliant. I really do. Um, I think that's um, a movie that they'll remember all of us for. It's a powerful all movie. Well, it's just, you know, I, I, I have to quick to make you understand, be quick to make you understand that it, it's a team effort. There's a lot of great people that helped Joel and Ethan mm -hmm. Cohen. Um, and they're, that's why I say you, you, you set your direction and you find people that can make your direction better than you can do. And that's mm -hmm. what all the people like Peter Curlin, the sound guy, I, I hear I'm naming names, but there's so many of them. Mary Zofries, my goodness, there's just so many people that take their vision and into another, but they've always have a really good direction. I'm just a small cog in that wheel. You know, I'm just the first guy that sees the movie. That's all. But those people have gone on like Dennis Gasner. They're huge. They're monsters. Um, 
I mean, not monsters bad, but they're, they're really big in the industry and right. they cut their teeth working with Joel and Ethan. And, um, one of the reasons their movies look so good, it's not just because of storyboarding is because of all the incredible people that worked on mm. them. I mean, mm. I'm always amazed when I, when I get around them, there is truth to what I say. You surround yourself with people who are smarter mm. than you are because they're all mm. smarter than me. Every last one of them. Um, well, I don't know how I've been able to pull off this imposter mm. gag that I've done. <laughs> well, you've done it really well. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which means I, I'm not really happy with, you know, the, the potential I've had as an actor. So, um, so. <laughs> you're going to keep drawing. <laughs> well, I have no choice. You shut up and draw, Anderson. That's what you do, man. Just shut up and draw, you know? So when you get a script, that opening, the, the, the first image on uh, in a movie is so important. Mm -hmm. What motivates you? What inspires you to create that first opening shot? I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> I ask a lot of questions and that's what I do. And um, I always ask people when they're, when they're interviewing, doing anything, I said, how good are your questions? You know, and that's what I do. I pelt people with questions. I just pelt them. And, um, and once I figure out a little bit of scale, then I go for it. You know, it's like when you work for with directors the first time, it's a little hard, but when you work with them second, third time, you kind of know them like Shane Black. I kind of know him. And when I work with him, so I know what to anticipate mm -hmm. um, and not assume, assume is an evil word that I don't use. Mm -hmm. It's like luck. I don't use it. And anybody uses those words around me, they can say all the four, you know, all the evil words they want, the F word, anything. Just mm -hmm. don't say assume around me and, <laughs> and, you know, don't say that's just bad luck. Don't say any of that. You know, I don't believe in any of that. But once you dial in your questions, then you can start to work, you know, mm -hmm. because once you get all your options on the table, you just start eliminating them. And that's how I work with my directors. I always tell them we're here to eliminate options mm. now the skilled directors that i've been had privileges to work with through the years um we can hit the ground running usually mm -hmm. you know they, we know how to talk to each other there's a language that goes on and um mm. the language has been developed and shaped but with a new person a first timer um you kind of go out kind of go in there like sticking swords in a basket until they squeal you know mm. um you find and, that sweet spot then yeah uh, yeah but you gotta know what kind of questions to ask man mm -hmm. you, you don't want to ask, you want to really think about your questions when you ask people. Think mm -hmm. hard, you know, and you can accomplish so much by asking good questions, you know, and, and people get offensive real quick when you're asking a lot of questions is they start getting offended. I said, no, no, I'm just asking questions. I got to figure out how to do this, you know. Mm -hmm. um, what would you do differently if you had a, had a do-over in, in your career? I wouldn't have been so cocky when I was young. I would have been a little bit nicer and um you know there's a lot of things i try not to think about them that i could have done better and just you know very surprised that some people even put up with me sometimes honestly um but i really believe in giving the benefit of the doubt and you know people that are held accountable for their younger you always kind of get to give them credit if they're trying to change and trying to become better because that's a lot of work. Um, understanding where your problems are and, and uh, knowing that and accepting that and moving on. You got to put that stuff behind you and try to do better.
you know, always. Mm -hmm. There were several situations in my life. I could have had a lot more opportunity if I would just handle it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't. But I was very fortunate to have, you know, two brothers who always hired me. It was very nice of them to do that because I knew how temperamental I could get sometimes. And um, but it's no good unless you understand that and, and, and you recognize that and you try to make it better, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I told Drew Barrymore one time, I had, it wasn't a really bad thing, but I just told her, I said, I'm sorry, I screwed up. I'll try to do better. And she got really upset about that. You know, like, you, you shouldn't say that to me, Jay Todd. You should. I said, well, I mean it. It's not like I'm trying to turn a screw in your back. I'm just saying, I'll try to do better for you. And, you know, real simple terms like, how can I make this right? How can I, how can I do better? You know, give me some thoughts on these things and uh, I'll try and do it. Most people don't even think about it. And when somebody's yelling at you, if they're your friend, that's some good crit- critical mm-hmm. advice, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that they are going to take the time to yell at you and and uh, come after you if they're your friend. That's a good thing. But if they're not, it doesn't matter what they're saying. It really doesn't. Right. And you know, I I I started recognizing that when people give you a piece of their mind, if they're your friend, you know, that's a really good thing. And 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 there's a you can't be offended by that. But if they're not your friend, they can't afford to give you that piece of mind. Mm. They really mm-hmm. can't. So those are the things that I would do different, but you can't really go back. And thinking of story, think what, what makes, what are the elements of a really good story? Story is everything. Story is everything. If you pull for that character, you know, good or bad, then that's what's going to reveal the plot in that movie. Is, is 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 story man you know we're here to tell stories that's what we're here to do and you know for my situation on this earth i'm not really interested in a lot of dialogue you know i'm not really interested in people sitting around talking in movies i could draw that and kind of make it interesting but i think that you should tell your story with if you had the, all the potential of the cinema why not try to use it you know there's no greater burden than potential of course but you know when you're dealing with cinema the potential is unlimited it's not like a stage play you know i don't think any of shakespeare's plays should ever be turned into movies and it's like giving horse steroids um you know although i just did macbeth with with joel i've always kind of said that you know but i think and, and if anybody could take could take a play and make it visually interesting, Joel Cohen could, and he did, you know, it's going to be spectacular when this movie comes out, Macbeth. Um, and I was very privileged to work on it, but I really think that your eye has to be on the prize all the time. And that's when you have cinema, it's unlimited, um, in potential. And my deal is to have simple figures and eye lines and things like that. Tell stories, not really interested in five pages of dialogue, not, that's for other people. It's not for me. I, it bores me to death. Um, occasionally, it's good. You know, good, good writing is what sells movies. You know, it's a, if the script's no good, you can't get a good movie. But I just believe that you can take it. And whenever I hear people talking, I'm thinking, well, it looked pretty cool if we actually shot this, you know. Mm-hmm. What's a film that has a s- story that is most impactful for you? Film and all of, if you look at all the films in history, what's a film that really stands out? Oh, that's that's another huge question, but I can just tell you No Country for Old Men, those guys took the visual potential to the absolute max on that movie. That's the only one I can name right now. There's quite a few movies, like 
Kiana Scott Seed. It's a documentary and what an impactful film that was. We have a website called perfectmovie.net and you can go there. And then the, the curator of the Library of Congress, George Willman, who is um, restores movies and knows more than anybody on the planet about movies. If you go to perfectmovie.net, there's 129 perfect movies on there. What makes a perfect movie? We got rules there. You should go to the site and see. But one of the rules is, is that it's not never rated numerically. <laughs> you can't do that with art, man. Right. It's like saying a Picasso is is better than a Da Vinci. And how is this better? Well, let me show you how I get paid so much money because I'm critiquing this painting. Yeah, can you paint? No. Um, <laughs> can you draw? No. But I can critique. I can. So that's one of them. And another one of the rules is that it still has its meaning. Mm. You know, like the day the earth stood still, it's still as valid as it was when it was released. Mm. You know, still as valid. Um, if you watch the Stooges, Ache in Every Steak, that is probably one of the greatest 20 minutes of comedy ever made. Mm. <laughs> I don't remember. What was that one about? What was the plot on that one? Well, there is no okay. plot. That's what's so cool about it. It's just the Stooges scorch earthing everything and then they they start by bringing a piece of ice up all those steps over there in silver lake and it's melted by the time they get up there and they end up falling down because you know this is what i want credit for one of the things that i've always said and i want credit for it i don't want anybody to steal it is there's only two villains in the movie in movies only two and one of them is nazis because if they arrive on the scene smoking with their, uh, you know, Hugo Boss uniforms, evil is about to happen. You know? <laughs> All you have to do is drop that little pill in the water and it happens. The other uh, villain in movies that makes them work is gravity. Hmm. Almost every movie ends with somebody falling from some height. <laughs> and the Stooges show you all about it in, in that movie where they're going up and down the steps man are those are, the same steps that they took the piano well that this the heart lauren hardy used the same steps okay. you know but the stooges give you a lesson in cinema history when you do it because yeah, that was lauren they hardy. Execute, I, was, I was in the wrong yeah the wrong people yeah, yeah but it, it, people get that mixed up because it was the same set of steps okay. the piano mm -hmm. and they did that i'm not i'm just saying the stooges is uh, one I'm more familiar with, but that's certainly a great movie where the piano chases them down the right. steps. And uh, uh, you don't hear laugh tracks and that stuff. And um, you don't hear hardly any music at all. It is pure knuckle bruising comedy, you know, physical comedy. And uh, uh, that ache, the ache, uh, and excuse me, an ache in every stake is the Stooges' greatest effort right there. I'll have to look that one up. You're never going to see anything better than that for, but I'm just saying you can't rate that stuff by numerical order. Right. These are all works of art. Right. All these movies that we have on there, all 129 of them, not ranked mm -hmm. in any way, shape or form. It's just the movie we chose to do uh, for that radio show. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all of them stand up today. Mm. They're all great. You can watch all of them and they have so much more meaning. Like some of them were losers when they came out and they didn't make any money. Mm -hmm. Like the Iron Giant, um, that's a brilliant movie. I'm not so sure it made a lot of money, but that guy is a brilliant guy that made that. And uh, Iron Giant is still valid. It'll never get old, never, unless our revisionists in this society start cutting stuff out of it because we're not supposed to see these things. Mm -hmm. You know, not supposed to hear certain words. 
um, uh, there's so many movies that you know that's called copyright violation in this country when you do this and they do it for commercials and stuff like that um if they start going in there and messing around with this stuff you're not going to understand why these were so valid and why they're still valid when they start revising these things and start saying you can't use this word and that word because it offends everybody you know unfortunately most of these movies haven't been really messed up with like there was, we have a made-for-TV movie on there. It's called Brian's Song, which we think were, was a perfect movie. But they used the N-word in it. And the radio station we were running it wasn't going to let us use any excerpts out of it. But the movie is still very meaningful for what happened to Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers, who were two great football players. And it was made in 1971, I think. But my point is, is you got to be real careful when you start revising these movies to make them fit into modern times. And uh, when you watch all our movies, you're gonna see some, you know, it doesn't mean that we think it's the greatest movie in the world, but we do think it's a perfect movie. Um, what's, the, what's the web address again? Perfectmovie.net. And they're all 120, and we have four more episodes coming out here pretty soon, it's a podcast. People always come up to me and they say, even when our show was hot, they said, hey, can you, uh, can you suggest some good movies? I said, yeah, I'll go to our website. There's 129 perfect movies there. <laughs> perfect movies. There's some cartoons on there. There's some silent movies, uh, like, you know, Sunrise. Um, there's some foreign films on there. Um, but we, by our curriculum of four rules, consider them perfect movies. And, you know, I got to tell you, when I was working with the brothers, I always felt like we were working on stuff that was going to be watched 20 and 30 years from now. And here I am, pretty old guy now. It has been 20 or 30 mm. years and people are watching it. So I think I accomplished that. It's just, there's no pay residual. You know, <laughs> for, you just a, for the storyboard like artist, Conrad. right? Well, I'm just a storyboard artist, man. I'm not that, I'm just a guy, a little cog in the wheel, yeah. like all those great people I work with, you know? I was just thinking, man, you, your story is a, uh, is a documentary and would make an interesting film. I doubt that. And we, could, we could call it no credit. <laughs> There's a lot of things you could call it, but nobody will come and see it. Let me tell you. Uh. <laughs> so in, in all of your work and in, in your life, what are some of the big life lessons you've learned along the way? And you've talked about some of these, but what are some, some that really stands out? Oh, man, that's a tough question. I've learned a lot, man, because I don't like to really do anything all day long unless I learn something. You know, I think that as you grow older, you're, that's one of your most valuable assets is learning something because that's what keeps you looking forward. Um, you have to keep your, here's what I've learned. You have to keep your mind open no matter what. And that's hard because you want to be reticent. You want to look in the rear. Marshall McLuhan said, you look in those rear view mirrors of the past, but um, no matter how much you hate somebody or something or despise it, you have to keep your mind open. You have to. I think that that is the best mechanism for control in your life is keeping your mind open to anybody, you know, no matter how much, like my film professor, Chuck Berry, we don't agree on hardly anything, but I got to tell you, I learned more from that guy in college than so many people. You know, I still use what he has told me and we never got along, never. And I think some of the best things you're going to learn is when your mind is open to something you don't like, you know, mm. you know, I've been in situations on scripts and movies and, um, 
and I did not like it. I didn't, I, I didn't, you know, but you have to keep your mind open. And that's a whole set of principles that you're constantly learning all the time. It's like listening, man. You never stop learning your listening skills ever. You're always learning how to listen. Always. Do you think that's a part of our problem in our culture today? Oh, absolutely. Don't, absolutely. Don't have their minds open. They're not keeping their minds open, man. And, um, they immediately side. And one of the things that you don't want to do, I found out in life, is immediately side with somebody. You know, um, you want to listen carefully and keep your mind open. Ah, you know, I'm not saying I'm successful at that. I work at it a lot. Um, I'm working on it. It's like when Eric Clapton was talking to Carl Perkins and, and he was asking him about the lick on the front of Honey Don't. And he told Eric Clapton, he goes, you know what? I'm still working on that. <laughs> how, how did you do that lick? You know, it's on the, on the record. He goes, oh, I'm still working on that. I think that that's, you know, what you got to do is, is it's a discipline more than anything. I found out as an artist, your best asset is your discipline as an artist, because that'll give you control. But along with that discipline, you have to keep your mind open. And that, that means for, people you don't get along with and you don't like and uh, subjects that you don't like, you have to walk into that thing with your nose in the air and, and make sure you're understanding it, you know, smelling it properly. And all my greatest friends are all smarter than me. I might add, um, they have incredibly open minds. Um, they're always looking for the workable options and the viable options that you can throw into something like the brothers, they came up with so many crazy things before we even put a pencil down sometimes, you know, if you can find a place in your life where you can step back far enough to laugh at it, I think it's a good place. I really do. Mm. Um, because then your mind's going to be open enough. It was like Paul Schrader, the filmmaker. He said that um, if you can laugh at your own embarrassment, that is the creative process. Mm. That's what he said. You know, um, he's wow. a great filmmaker. I love his work. Um, all the way from when he was a writer and director, and I still love his work. I do. Um, but I remember that you have to be able to laugh at your own embarrassment. You have to. Um, that's why I always say, well, just look for a place to stand where you can start laughing and everything. Because, you know, that old adage, if you want to make God laugh, show him your plans, you know. <laughs> so you have an alter ego that plays Which in a one? band. <laughs> that plays people in a band. I talk to myself all the time. I got a dog now, so I don't have to, you know, when people see me talking to myself, they think I'm talking to my dog. So, so, so you play in a band, right? You have a kind I do. Of a, I, is, I, I, once in a while, I'll, I'll come into that band and sit in, but the guy that runs that band, I can't really stand. I don't like him. I try to keep an open mind around him, but it's really hard. There you go. It's that open mind thing again. Yeah, it is, but it's really hard around that guy because he's a jerk. He is an <laughs> idiot. And he is a jerk, man. Um, I can't stand him. I try not to shake hands with him too much, but um, his name's Golden Guy. And uh, <laughs> winners write the history, losers write the songs. Golden Guy, personal pain. I hate that guy. The guy's an idiot. You know, I do not. I don't even sit at the same table with him. I'm trying to keep an open mind, Conrad. <laughs> 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 oh boy. Um, so, what's the next big thing for you? <laughs> Well, I don't know, man. You know, they just said I had COVID and I was pretty happy that I survived that. Um, yeah. So um, I'm working on commercials for a really great lawyer here in town named Michael Wright. And um, 
and then good deal with success i get to direct a little bit which I mean, people won't let me do mm-hmm. and um i've done like six commercials for him five commercials and they're working out you know he's he's doing good so i'm doing a commercial and um i have a wright brothers movie that i'm going to do as a podcast mm. where people act and then we'll shake it out that way instead of going through all the trouble of making a movie being less expensive um mm-hmm. i have a movie that's been in the can i mean movie i've been wanting to do for years which is a remake of white zombie um and i can't get anybody to bite on that um but it'll be a great movie if we ever get it done um i want to make another movie i've done two in my lifetime which literally sucked the life out of me when I did them. But I think I'm smarter now, Conrad. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I learned from my lessons. I can make different mistakes now. I think <laughs> I tell myself that. And, um, you know, yeah. um, those are the things that I'm, I'm doing. I play in the band occasionally when Golden Guy lets me. Mm-hmm. Um, he usually makes me lug equipment around and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, I had to string his guitar. <laughs> You know, I had to tell him how great he was, you know, back mm-hmm. when he had a future and, you know, I had to do all that stuff, you know, so, um, and I got a pretty good girlfriend, so I just got to keep working until I can't work anymore. I'm pretty old now, so I still think I got a few jobs left in me, you know. Okay. Um, so you, you just finished the film with the Coen brothers? Or with one no, of them? No, Joel Cohen. With Joel, okay. Joel and Fran, they were producers together. Gotcha. They were the, they did that movie together as a team. But Ethan is he says he's retired. I don't know. Um, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could retire. I you just were working on something. I think earlier last year, sometime down in down in Louisiana or something. You were working on. You told me you were down in New Orleans. No, nah, that was a couple of years ago. I was oh, going up you doing M Night Shyamalan's television show Servant, but then it all came crashing to a halt. Okay. And I was working for this guy named Steve Zalian, Magnificent Mr. Ripley, and who he was a real that was a great script, man. He was a great guy to work with, man. He was so sharp, that director. And then I just did this thing, um, Jennifer Yu, Jessica Yu, and it's a railroad movie that I drew with Liam Neeson in it. Oh, I like Liam. He, it's about the Chinese watch. workers hmm. that did the Golden Spike. Really oh, wow. magnificent piece of history. Bill Mechanic was a producer and he wrote it. It was really beautiful. I don't know. We're running into COVID. Every yeah. time you get a little bit of momentum, COVID shuts us down. You know. What's going to be the future for the, the movie industry? I mean, well, I don't know. It doesn't look good because Warner is making sure that you're not going to be able to go to a, a theater and see stuff. Right. They're releasing movies the same day the theater releases. You know, as a stream. And that's, you know, I grew up on the theater experience, you know, and uh, I have a friend who just opened a brand new theater down here in Frederick uh, earlier this year, right when COVID was hitting and they have a brand new theater. It's kind of a new concept. They, it's a kind of a one-stop date night. You know, they have the food, they have the beer, they have like 36 different beers on top and they have uh, reclining heated seats in the theater. And, yeah, it's been a couple. I've yeah. seen a couple of this. I'm not so sure it's going to save the movie because you're sitting there yeah. doing all this and then somebody pulls up their phone and starts working on it and right. the distraction, you know. I remember a couple of years ago, I was in a theater watching the scene and I've been wanting to see this actor work, you know. Mm-hmm. And he had a good three-page scene to work with. And, um, you know, I was watching it very carefully because I've been wanting to see this guy expand. And, um, and I'm hanging on every word, just hanging on every word. And I always go and sit in the back of the theater. Hopefully nobody will sit up there with me, you know. And when I'm listening very carefully, 
this woman beside me, her phone rings and she starts texting with that amount of light hitting my eyes. And I almost took her phone and, and stomped on it, you know, because the biggest thing about movies, I think, is them competing with everything else. Right. right. <laughs> you know, in, the, in the movie's heyday, they didn't compete with anybody. You know, you had radio and you had magazines, books. You didn't even have television. So when you went to theater, you got the full experience. Mm -hmm. And now you kind of segment the experience. Like at home, you're doing something else. Like when I did my first movie, I brought it home to show my mom. You know, I was very proud of it. And, uh, and I had a VHS copy on it and she starts folding her socks while she's watching it, you know, <laughs> well, it's worse now <laughs> <laughs> to get anybody to focus literally on what you're yeah, doing. Right. In the early days of my career, we used to go to dailies. We'd all jump in the cars and we'd go to a movie theater and they would show all 36 takes of somebody's mistakes, you know, mm -hmm. or, and you finally find a good one on the slate. I loved it. I loved it, man. I just, mm -hmm. I ate it up going into a dark theater. There's always plenty to eat and drink. And, uh, and um, the people that were dead serious about making movies were always there. I was a storyboard artist, but I would go to the dailies. And I even helped them sync dailies. I, I did mm -hmm. them on a movie Ola back then. And I helped Trisha Cook uh, sync up the dailies. And that's what she did on Barton Fink. I learned how to do all that. And then, because I went to dailies. And uh, imagine that. Now they don't even have dailies. Somebody sitting there watching 36 takes of something. It's, it's unfathomable. And Frank Oz uh -huh. once told me when I was working with him, you know, the Muppet guy, he said that your more experienced directors are able to watch something over and over and over again without being fatigued. And I always remembered what he told me that because it was, it's really true. You've really got to get your focus on the most dangerous and interesting people in the world are people with focus, you know, mm. they really are. And, um, was there ever a time when you were in the, you were doing a shoot and the, so what you drew wasn't working so that on the set you had to redraw or re redo? Oh, the yeah. Yeah. Thing? They would, you know, the brothers would call me and they'd say, hey, we need you to redraw this a little bit differently. Um, own brother, where I thought I remember they did that. And um, other movies, you know, they'd ask me to come to the set. I like a Mothman Prophecy. I went out and drew on car hoods in the middle of the winter, you know, because that that bridge was such an important element of that movie. It was expensive. And so I said, I'll just come out and fix it, you know, help you fix it. I wouldn't want to fix it, but they can tell me and I can draw it. And so I was drawing on car hoods, you know, in the middle of the winter and they'd hand that drawing off to the director and the director would go and do it. Um, hmm. But the reason why is because everybody should be watching the same movie and not making it up in their heads. And a storyboard does that immediately. You're watching the same movie if you follow a storyboard. You know? mm -hmm. So you've had a really interesting life and you still have a long way to go to finish up. So. Who's a director you haven't worked with that you'd like to work with? Hitchcock. Assumptions. No, I, you know, I always wanted to work for Spielberg just once, you know, to mm -hmm. see how he does things. And I never got the chance because they all have their own storyboard directors. You know, I think Vince Gilligan is a pretty amazing guy you know, on the Breaking Bad series. I think he's mm -hmm. pretty brilliant. Um, I would like to work for him. And those are two people. Uh, I, when I was in college, I wanted to work with all these guys and they were all dying out, you know. Mm -hmm. And then all the people I ended up working with became huge mentors, mm -hmm. you know, and they all became incredible directors. Like Liam Lasse Hoster, I only worked with him once. 
he was really fantastic. Like most good directors, there's a lot more going on in their head than ends up on the screen. Mm -hmm. And if you can get in there and find some of that stuff, then it'll be a better movie. And uh, that's my job is to find that stuff to make them look Mm -hmm. like the great directors they are. That's my job. You know, I'm an interpreter, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm just not, I'm not there to give away all my secrets. I'm there to make sure that their knowledge gets on the screen, man. That's what I can do a better job than most people without a storyboard artist if I can come in there and listen to them really good and find a few elements. Because once it's, once you draw it and it's on paper, it's kind of set, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you sit around and talk about a great idea, it'll dissipate in the wind. You know, it's like chaff, it'll go away. But if you can draw it on a storyboard, it'll hang in there, man. It will hang in there. And that's the encouraging you know, thing about storyboarding is they're like visual notes. You know, like I tell people, when I do a movie, I am there to solve their visual problems. Hmm. And nobody thinks of problems being visual. They just don't. Mm-hmm. In my world, they never stop making visual problems. They got a machine that kicks them out, you know, and I'm there to solve them. That's what I do is I solve their visual problems. And uh, most people don't understand that until they work with me and they, you know, I have process and, and that's what I do. I solve their visual problems. That's what I'm there for. I've learned from a lot of business people around the world. And and one of the guys that I'd listen to a lot is Donald Miller from StoryBrand down in Nashville. And he often says in his workshops and webinars that you as a business, you're there to solve someone's problem. You know, and that's, that's how right. you make money. You, you right. figure out what that problem is. And that's what you've done. You've figured out the problem that you can solve for people and you've made a career out of that well my problem is always one thing it's a visual problem you know because a script is not going to make a movie but a a visual image you have to go to the existential image and no matter how how ugly it looks as hideous little lines it's still becoming visual it's coming into this world man you know most people go from script to camera that's what they do and they stand around with their hands on their hips and with these incredible looks on their faces, trying to figure out where to put that camera and how to do this. And But you know what? The brothers, you walk on that set and they stick that camera in the ground right where it's supposed to go. And you don't hear too many people talking, you know, hmm. there's not, it's not like high school out there, like on most sets. It's just like Hollywood's just high school with money. That's all it is. You know, <laughs> it's a bunch of people hanging on to youth and trying to, you know, there's a woman, I can't even tell you who it is because I'll violate her confidence, but um, she told me something really interesting one day. She's a costumer on a television show. Really great costumer, wonderful person. She, you know, they have two or three tapings on one day of these these television shows and then they edit them together. Mm-hmm. So they have two or three different audiences. And she says, when the actors come out, you can see them just standing over there wondering who's looking at them. You know, they're just standing there and you can tell that they're measuring because if you can measure it, you can manipulate it. You know, that old Asian saying they're measuring who's looking at them and why. And, you know, because all of a sudden they're in front of them. And um, I understand that because I've seen that happen, you know, mostly on television shows, you know, where there's an audience 15 feet away Mm -hmm. from them. Um, Mm Stars is pretty private on a set, you know, but that's a really big deal when you see people, um, 
their ego is, is vaunted because of this, you know? Mm. And that's why I always call Hollywood's like everybody never growing up and having money for the rest of their life. And it's in, it's invasion of the body snatchers, whichever version you want. That's what it is. Fortunately, I have been able to work with a lot of people who have level heads and they understand they come from backgrounds where, you know, you don't let this stuff get under your skin, you know, um, mm. you just don't, and they're really, really principled people that work to give you the best. I've been, because of the Cohen brothers, I've been surrounded by those people for years. And I, for that matter, because I've gotten this far, it's because I've been around people who are just really great professionals, you know, because that's what we are. We're professionals. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're supposed to handle ourselves like professionals. That's what we're supposed to do. They always said that Clark Gable, I'd always read that Clark Gable was a movie star. And one guy said that he was a movie star because he dressed like a movie star and he acted like a movie star and he was respectful. Portrayed that image. He portrayed that image and he was respectful to people who bought his tickets to watch his movies. He behaved like a professional. He looked like a professional. He dressed like, like a movie star. He took it to the point where he was just the absolute professional. And I've seen guys like that. They're absolute movie professionals you know um because this is a trade this is what we do and um we don't take the entertainment side too seriously and we've seen many of them that haven't done that (laughs) no and it really makes me feel bad when i see that and i always wonder have i ever acted like that you know Mm. i always say was there a time when i acted like that i gotta remember when you work with so many great pros like i have great actors just wonderful people you really feel bad for the people that act up. And there's a lot of times where they're being publicized, looking bad, that you don't know why they're behaving like right. that. You right. don't understand that they've been provoked beyond their tolerance for some reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, there's always a lot going on. Maybe this person had a kid that was sick or something. You just don't know. I but, saw an interview recently. Actually, it was a setup for her new documentary, Paris Hilton. And she was just talking about how she had, she was portrayed as this bimbo and didn't know much, you know, over-sexualized human being. She said, a lot of that was just people that I allowed into my life who were making decisions for me. I believe that, man. You know, today she's a, she's worth, she's worth, you know, what, $80 million. And she's has this empire that she's building and she's really smart business person. It's easy to poke fun at her. You know, it really is. I'm glad you never asked the question, but I always get the question, who are the jerks and idiots that you work with? And I won't sure. answer that yeah. question. I, I'll only tell you about the great people mm-hmm. that I work with because why drag those people down with a, a really negative mm-hmm. connotation to somebody? You know, I know this is not the business that I'm in. And I always tell people, you know, you just have to work hard. It's not going to fall on you. You're not going to get discovered. You know, you have to work hard. You really do. And I did. I worked really hard in the beginning, but I was also blessed with the right people around. Right. And if you're looking for that and you're looking for people like that, then you'll probably find. Mm-hmm. But I just don't like to make any kind of, of negative opinion on anybody in the business because I've been surrounded by so many great people. Mm-hmm. You know. Very good. So in 50 years, when some new up and coming director Film I haven't producer. been at it 50 years, Ed Conrad. Well, I'm just going to say, when they're making a movie about your life. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> what will the log line be? <laughs> Don't come to this movie. <laughs> Fine. I wouldn't pay for this movie, even if they gave it to me. 
stay away from this movie. It'll the scales will fall off your skin and you will die. It's so boring. <laughs> well, I can assure you that you know what I've seen of your work and it has definitely not been boring. And you've had an amazing career. And uh, looking forward to the next thing that you're going to work well, on. Well, you know what Frank Trapper said: the biggest sin is being dull, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's one sin. There's no one sin that's greater than another, as we, you and I both know. But I think that was Frank Capra, pretty, pretty uh, good, good observation. Yeah. You know, the number one, the biggest sin you, you can make is being dull. You know. <laughs> well, Jay Todd, thanks so much for your time. It's great to talk to you, and uh, hope you uh, are able to get back to work soon. It's always wonderful working with you. Thank you, Conrad. Jay Todd, for sure your life has not been dull. Thanks for sharing your story and the lessons you've learned while working in Hollywood. I can't wait to see what you're working on next. Speaking of next, next time on the My Story podcast, my guest is Abigail de Casanova. For more than 15 years, Abigail has styled some of the most recognized faces in media, fashion, and entertainment. She is one of the leading makeup and style artists, and in my opinion, the best, in Washington, D.C., and I've had the distinct privilege of working with her on a number of my projects. Be sure to come back next week for her inspiring story. Hey, if you enjoy what you hear on the show, please leave a review and a rating. This lets me know what you like and how I can improve the show. I also encourage you to share this episode with a friend or a colleague who may be interested in the show. The music on today's show is from my friend, Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Hey, thanks for coming by today. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you again next week on the My Story Podcast. Mm -hmm.